are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Brainwashed, branded, and beaten. Since 1998, approximately 18,000 people have taken its courses in the United States, Mexico, and Canada. How did a con artist specializing in pyramid schemes and crooked marketing techniques lead a cult with chapters spanning three different countries? In the first part of our two-part series, we'll discuss the cult's leaders and how the company Executive Success Programs Incorporated became the Nexium Cult. Welcome to another episode of the Cabinet of Dr. Mystery. I am your host, Dr. Mystery. I tried to create living zombies. Reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. All I gotta do is relax and they'll take me to their death. Last chance to evacuate Earth before it is recycled. This is a wicked, wicked world. We are all evil in some form or another. Welcome back, Mysterians. I hope everyone had a good summer. I moved to a new city, which is super exciting. If you're a regular listener, you'll notice that uh, we took a break this summer. I had to deal with the big move and some family issues that came up, but I had a great summer. I spent a lot of time with my family, I met some new friends, I played some new games and tried a lot of new beer, and I finally caught up on some non-research reading and some live shows. One thing that's incredible is the uh, ability to go and see some live shows again. I, I know myself, I have really been missing live shows, seeing live music, and it's really invigorating to see some return to live performances. It's really great to see, and I've been trying to do all that I can to get out and catch some live shows and live poetry readings and all sorts of live performances. I also had some stellar camping and lake adventures that really gave me a lot of energy and, and really helped invigorate me and, and bring me back some energy that I was missing from being stuck in this COVID quarantine world that we're all living in. So like I said, we had to cut last season short due to some personal family issues. So seriously, thank you all so much for waiting for us to get back from the break. It was a much needed break. In the future, we'll probably take a break in the month of September. I just really needed to focus on the, the move and family issues. And, uh, you know, so it was a little bit of a extended sabbatical. But, you know, I really appreciate everybody that's been reaching out to us and people who have been talking to us on the Discord server and different people who've been DMing, DMing me and messaging me, asking if everything's all right and asking when the next episodes are going to come out. It's really great to see that there's still this community that supports the show and supports me personally. So big thank you from Dr. Mystery and everybody here at the cabinet. That being said, you can check out our Discord server. We have really awesome stuff going on. We're going to do some more streaming and more movie watching. And we actually just started a book club, which is really exciting. The first book that we're going to be reading is uh, Lovecraft Country. So we're going to be discussing that in the book club in the Discord server. And next month, we're going to find another book. And we're going to keep doing this every month, reading a book and talking about the book and having a, a nice, cute little book club meetup just to develop some more interesting things on the Discord server. So you can check out the, the server. I'll, I'll drop a link below in this episode. And you can also check it out on any of our socials. We all, always have them linked there. Before we begin today's episode... 
We're going to be talking about some dark stuff in this two-part series. It's important to look at this stuff and see how twisted and disturbing people can actually be and how people can kind of pull the wool over your eyes. You know, they're basically wolves in sheep's clothing, and that's what Keith Raniere and Nancy Salzman are. We're going to be talking about some disturbing experiments that they did, some sexual assault, and some bloody and graphic violence that's depicted in various experiments. And so, you know, again, we're going to have this content warning. So if you're squeamish, there's plenty of other episodes that you can check out. With that being said, it's important to discuss these cults and to discuss these twisted individuals and these dark events, because a lot of these people are people that you see every day that you would believe would be just like you and I, normal, everyday, decent human beings, and they turn out to be twisted and sick individuals, and they manipulate people to do things with them or for them. And, you know, if we don't discuss these things, personally, I find, you know, I feel like we're, we're giving power to these individuals because society wants to forget the dark things that happened in history and the dark things that are happening currently. And it's important to look at the dark things that are happening and discuss how we can see warning signs in the future and how we can protect women and men and trans and non-binary individuals from experiencing these cult-like phenomenons. So when we're talking about the Nexium cult, we have to talk about the cult's leader, the cult's founder, Keith Raniere. So Keith Raniere was born in Brooklyn, New York on August 26, 1960. His father worked in advertising and his mother was a dance instructor. So we see that his father working in advertising really propelled him to start the, his career in advertising and his career in multi-level marketing. And his father's advertising work really pushed him to join these different companies that we'll talk about and to start Nexium altogether. He was really, really impacted by his father's work. Keith claims that at the age of 12, he read The Second Foundation by Isaac Asimov, and that inspired him to establish the main principles for the Nexium cult. So at the age of 12, this guy is already thinking about what he's going to do in the future. And it's just crazy to think about this 12-year-old has this idea for this cult, and he brings it to fruition years and years in the future. The Second Foundation is a science fiction novel that focuses on the character known as the Mule. The Mule had abilities to manipulate and control people's emotions and minds, and he uses his powers which allow him to create fear or total devotion within his victims, and he tries to overthrow a secretive organization known as the Foundation. So Keith Raniere compared himself to the character of the Mule, and he claimed that he would use this inspiration to control the minds of his followers. So we'll, we'll get into it in a little bit about NLPs. We'll discuss that in a little bit. And that NLP is really what connected him to this mule character, to the idea that the mule can control people through fear, manipulation, or devotion. Keith was also known within the cult as the Vanguard. And I believe the Vanguard is... Uh, a name that he got from a video game that he used to play. So he's really inspired by like pop culture and, and current events and that sort of thing. So you'll see a lot of that sprinkled in here is like, you think, oh, that's a really cool name. And then, or that's a really cool idea. And then you're like, oh, he got that from a book, right? Or, oh, he got that from a movie. So 
we'll go through and he'll, we'll talk about how highly Keith thought of himself. But the more that we dig into this, the more simplistic he really is. In the 80s, Keith got his start in the MLM schemes with the company Amway. This group, Amway, used a tactic known as multi-level marketing, which is essentially a pyramid scheme. So it, the idea is that you, I mean, for those of you who don't know what a pyramid scheme is, the idea, especially in this uh, specific case, is that you would have, you know, you would have one person starting and that person would get two other people. Those two people would get two other people. Those two people would get two. And then you have this giant pyramid structure of uh, a hierarchy of different people engaging or roping in different members within these different organizations that he would start. So a lot of these multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes are illegal in various countries, including the US, and I believe in Canada as well. So when Keith was doing all of these things, and he was starting these multi-level marketing pyramid scheme companies, a lot of them, he really struggled uh, with, you know, the government was trying to shut him down repeatedly. And we'll see that as we go through this. So around this time in the 80s, various women have come forward with allegations that when Keith was 24, so probably around 1984, that he had at least two sexual relationships with 15-year-olds. So he's 24, and he's sleeping with 15-year-olds. So that's not a sexual relationship, right? That's, that's statutory rape. In the 90s, Keith was a leader of the Consumers Byline Incorporated group. This company was again another pyramid scheme. After several government investigations, the company was shut down around 1993. Surprisingly, Keith was only ordered to pay $40,000 in fines and to stop participating in or promoting businesses with a chain distribution scheme or a pyramid scheme. Unfortunately, this did not deter him from starting another company. So he started another company called the National Health Network. So they sold pills and other sort of pharmaceutical, herbal remedy, medication things. And, you know, it was really just a load of nonsense. And it was another way for him to have this MLM pyramid scheme on the go. But after a few years, the, the, the company, it, it failed to generate any traction, any business. And he shut down the business in 1999. So he was looking for another project. He was looking for the next thing that he could work on. And Keith began developing interests in Scientology and neuro-linguistic programming. So that's the NLP that we talked about. And I'll go into more detail in a, in a few minutes here about what NLP actually is. So these ideas, they led him to meet Nancy Salzman around 1998. And together they formed executive success programs, which would eventually become Nexium. So for those of you who have you know, our regular listeners, and you've listened to our Children of God series, you will know, or at least notice, some similarities between the Children of God and Nexium, at least in terms of the leaders. So David Berg, the leader of the Children of God, he gave himself a title, King David. And, you know, he claimed to be many things. We have a, uh, like a whole episode where it's like 20 minutes dedicated to reading off a list of things that he claimed to be. But we see a lot of similarities between him and Keith in this, in this sense. Keith not only gave himself a title, the vanguard, he also claimed to be a scientist, 
a mathematician, a grand master at piano, a judo champion, among other things. So basically, he presented himself as the smartest man in the world. You know, he's a genius scientist with amazing intellect, and he's like a grand master at piano and martial arts, and, you know, he's amazing at math. But I mean, you know, the further that we dive into this, the more we look at his actual, you know, college records or university records, you can see he's really not that intelligent. And, you know, that's not to say that he's an idiot because he wasn't an idiot. You know, he he was well read and he was able to uh, articulate his thoughts and feelings very well. And he did use NLP to manipulate people. So it wasn't like he was a complete idiot. It was just like he really hyped himself up. There was something that was really interesting in some of the documentaries that I watched was that there was actually a record in an Australian Guinness Book of World Records that listed him as a very intelligent person or he had like a, a high IQ that was the highest in the world. But the, the Guinness Book of World Records realized that either he had paid for the test to be fudged or it was like a weird test that anybody could have uh, excelled at. So they only printed it in one uh, version or one printing in the Australian Guinness Book of World Records. I thought that was a really interesting little tidbit of information. They were like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll put you in there. And then they were like, oh, dang, boy, you, you got us fooled, right? Now, we really kind of see how much of a total ass Keith really is. In a few of his speeches... He spoke of how young people were introduced to a sexual, quote, apprenticeship, and how they thoroughly enjoyed the abuse, and he used air quotes when he said abuse, so this was an actual speech that I watched. He further stated that only when society showed these young people that they were being abused did they begin to recognize it as sexual assault. So that just shows the uh, depravity in his mind and how he uses these these sorts of ideas to justify the sexual abuse of women and minors and he's a really twisted individual and it's a really weird mindset to get into it's it's difficult for me to even think about what he's really talking about like you're uh we'll get into this a little bit later but you know you're not a victim unless you make yourself a victim so if you are sexually assaulted or you're abused or you're physically assaulted, you're not a victim unless you make yourself a victim. So if you enjoy the abuse, then you're not being abused. You're enjoying it. It's pleasurable. It's a weird mindset to get into. But, you know, that's the twisted kind of depraved mindset that he was really in this whole time is that that's his thinking. And it's just incredibly, it's just incredibly off-putting and difficult for me to think in that manner. We'll get into his collective group of women that he would surround himself with, his, his sex slaves, as he called them. But, you know, a lot of times people thought that Keith was celibate because he and others at times had claimed that he was celibate and that he didn't drive a vehicle and he didn't do a lot of things that regular people did. And, uh, you know, it was almost like he was a monk, like he was, he was a, a holy being that didn't engage in sexual activity and didn't drink and didn't do these other things, right? 
obviously that's not true at all, as we'll see as we go into this, the, the rest of this uh, tale about the Nexium cult. You know, that's what a lot of his close followers believed, is that he didn't have sex, that he was celibate. So him surrounding himself with all these different women, it was viewed as a way to empower the women and enlighten women. And it was, he almost portrayed himself as progressive. Another individual that we need to look at is Nancy Salzman. Nancy Salzman called herself the prefect, or she had others call herself the prefect in the cult. Nancy was a therapist and a hypnotist who specialized in neuro-linguistic programming. And again, we'll talk about NLP in further detail in just a little bit. Nancy was listed as the group's president, and together, her and Keith used a lot of therapy tactics and a little bit of hypnosis to gain private knowledge from members that they could use to manipulate them and that they could, uh, you know, garner information to be used as blackmail should they choose to leave or question any of the leader's methods. When you dig into the cult structuring and the different practices that Nexium engaged in, you can see that Keith took, you know, this amalgamation, this combination of different techniques and he kind of mashed them together to form the cult. Like we said earlier, he worked for Amway and Consumers Byline, and he had his own national health network company, and he took a lot of these ideas of MLMs in, from Amway and, and Consumer Byline into his teachings and the practices of Nexium, and that whole sort of recruiting other members to gain more momentum within the group. As we previously said, another subject that Keith was infatuated with was the idea of Scientology and specifically its processes of auditing. I'm sure we'll do an episode on Scientology. We'll probably have to do like a, a multi-part series on Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard. But we'll, we'll just briefly cover Scientology and auditing in this episode just to give you an idea of some of the ideas that were practices that Keith took from Scientology and brought into Nexium. So one of them was auditing, which is the process of locating areas of distress, otherwise known as engrams, and pinpointing those distressful events to free the person of these past sufferings. So engrams are essentially memories of events that took place in a person's life. And in Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard teaches that we are thetans, I believe that's how you say it, Thetans, or immortal souls who are not limited to a single lifetime. So, my particular soul could date back billions or trillions of years. So, that's a lot of auditing sessions overall. And a lot of these auditing sessions, you had to pay for them. And you had to do, I think it was someone had said in a documentary I'd watched where they did two hours of auditing a day, like almost every day. And you had to pay for these sessions as well. These auditing procedures were akin to Catholic confessionals where you, you go in and you sit down and you say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, right? And, you know, the idea was that, you know, the difference was that these uh, confessionals, they, they used an electronic e-meter device. So someone's there to listen to you and take your confession, but they pinpoint different subjects you bring up when they spot some activity on this device. They called the person being audited the pre-clear because they haven't been cleared of their past traumas. But, you know, I'm going to call them confessors because it's more fun. Pre-clear, it just sounds like weird vodka or something, right? It just sounds like a weird, a weird alcohol pre-clear. 
so I'm going to call them confessors. The e-meter is a device that measures small electronic changes in the confessor's body. These low-level changes in electrical resistance are supposed to pinpoint mental tension in the confessor. The person who's, who's doing the auditing, studies have shown that these people are able to have some sort of authoritarian control over those who are doing the confessing. So they're, they're using this e-meter and they can almost kind of manipulate the people who are confessing or who are being audited, which is really interesting to think about that um, when you're in this position of power, people just respect your opinion because you are the one controlling the e-meter, right? And the e-meter knows all. It's like a crystal ball, but, you know, 21st century. We'll talk about Dr. Brandon Porter a little later on in this series. But Scientologists believe that Dianetics could cure various ailments, and this would be mimicked in Dr. Brandon Porter's procedures and his claims about his own teachings and the practices that he implemented within Nexium. Now, the auditing process in Nexium, it was similar, but it was called EMs, or Explorations of Meaning. These sessions would push people to confront these traumatizing events in their past. And these people were told these procedures would release or decrease any negative emotions that people still cling to or were affected by. So these members were required to go through these sessions to ascend on the stripe path. And I've seen some of these sessions. It is intense. They grill you and they try to find certain things in your past that really traumatized you, right? Something that you did or something that someone did to you or something that, you know, just happened because life is shit sometimes. And they will really, really pinpoint these, these certain things that happened in your life and, and they'll find triggers that really set you off and they will, they will harp on these. They will, they'll say, okay, this one thing in your past, let's really hammer down on it. And sometimes, you know, I could see that some people uh, felt a sense of relief after releasing that negative emotion, those negative energies. But sometimes people uh, have been recorded to have complete and utter mental breakdowns because of this consistent pressure and, and this consistent, uh, you know, push by the people who are doing these auditings, these, these explorations of meaning. And, you know, there are some traumatic things in people's past when they've been sexually assaulted or they have PTSD because of being at war or being in a, in a violent situation or being abused for a long period of time. It's difficult to say that finding these negative emotions and these traumatizing experiences with people and, and hammering down and doubling down on them and really, really not letting go you know, I could see that a lot of people would have serious mental breakdowns because of that. Now, I mentioned the stripe path. The stripe path was the cult's ranking system, and it showed who had more power within the hierarchy. We'll cover the stripe path in more detail. I know I keep saying that. We'll go into it in more detail, but, you know, I promise we will. Um, but we'll, we'll cover it in more detail when we discuss their cult-like rituals and teachings, but again, a little bit later on in the series. Along with the EMs, these explorations of meanings, Nancy Salzman introduced NLP or neuro-linguistic programming. I, I told you. I told you we would get there. We got there. We're talking about NLPs now. 
NLP is a pseudoscientific approach in which a proctor, as was called in this particular cult within the Nexium cult, these people uh, practicing NLP were called proctors. The idea is that you can analyze patterns of speech, thought, and behavior in successful people and teach those patterns to others. So you can look at people who have had success, people who have excelled in their career or people who are successful in life overall, and you can say, okay, when, they're, when they encounter this situation, they did this. When they get up in the morning, they do this. When they, you know, and you, you look at their behaviors, you look at the different thought patterns and the, you know, the patterns of speech and the way that they go about their life, and you try to uh, sort of implement that and change the way that people think and behave by, by showing them or teaching them these thought patterns and behaviors of others who are successful. With these NLP sessions, the proctor would analyze verbal and nonverbal cues, and this allowed them to alter and control human behavior. Discuss NLPs, and you look at people who practice neurolinguistic programming, that's really what they're doing. It's a way for you to control someone through your own behavior and actions and their own behavior and actions. And you can analyze different things that they do and say and the way that they behave, and you can alter the way that they think. And, you know, it, NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, it's, it's, it can be a very simple thing, right? You can see it if you observe human behavior. You observe the way that uh, a couple interacts with each other or the way that a parent and a child interact with each other. And you can see that there is some subtlety of neuro-linguistic programming being implemented, whether it's a conscious thing or not, in these conversations and in these discussions. Another similarity with Scientology is that suppressive persons were targeted for condemning or opposing the cult. So if someone would defect from Nexium, the leaders would go after them either in court or through private investigators hunting them down. And that's one thing that we see a lot in Scientology. Again, maybe we'll cover it in an in a actual Scientology series, but a lot of people who defect from Scientology, whether they're famous or not famous whatsoever, you'll see that there are things that Scientology will do to, uh, you know, try to bring people back into the fold or to prevent people from speaking out. You know, they, they go after these people and they attack them. They attack them. They, they will try to manipulate people around them. They will hunt them down. So a lot of people in Scientology, and I, I assume in Nexium, they would change their name. They would relocate. They would move to a different part of, of the country or the world to try to um, evade these private investigators. And there was one story I was reading about Scientology, and I can't remember the name, but the current leader of Scientology was his, his father, actually. His father had said that, you know, I, I was in Scientology for 30 or 40 years. I brought my whole family into Scientology. I loved my son. I still do. But he's changed. He's not the same person he is. Now he's the leader of Scientology, but he said... The more power that his son accumulated within Scientology, within the group, dare I say cult, they, he said he changed more and more with each power struggle that he overcame. And there was one point where he said, I was, you know, living outside of the, the organization, outside of Scientology, 
And he said that he had audio recordings or he, he had been presented with these audio recordings by police about how there were private investigators that were following him around. And he said in one incident, he had his cell phone in his breast pocket of his, of his shirt. And as he was loading groceries into his car, he said he reached for his cell phone because he thought it was going to fall out of his, his breast pocket. And these private investigators that were watching him, they, there was audio recordings of them calling his son, who is the leader of Scientology, and saying, hey, we think your father, they called him the Mark, right? But they said, we think that he is having a heart attack. Should we call 911? Should, what, what should we do? And his son called them back and said, hey, if it's his time to die, it's his time to die. I'm just letting that sink in for a moment there. These cults, they can envelop you so much. They can change the way that you think and change the way that you behave that you will let your own family members die to save face, to save face within the cult. You know, a lot of people will say, how can you actually get so enveloped in this cult? How can you get so roped in? And that's the thing that we discussed in the Children of God series is it's not, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, this is years and years and years of having everything taken away from you, right? And, and we'll see that a lot of cults, including Nexium, as we'll see as we go throughout this series, a lot of cults try to isolate you. They remove people from their parents, from their family members. They, you know, take that sort of whole friendship circle that you have and they get rid of it and they pull you out of your friend group and pull you away from your family and they say, this cult, Nexium, this cult, Children of God, this cult, uh, Scientology, this is your family. These are your friends. These are the people that you need to hang around with. And that's one of the issues I have with a lot of religious cultures, right? Like a lot of culture within religious groups like Christianity, Catholicism, etc. They will say to you that you shouldn't be dating anybody outside of the church, right? You shouldn't be friends with people outside of the church. You shouldn't engage with people if they're not Christians, if they're not Catholics, right? But I digress. Let's, let's dive back into Nexium here instead of my own personal views. The, you know, if, if we look at Nexium, we're going to look at the executive success programs. So as we said before, Nexium started as Executive Success Programs Incorporated. So these ESPs, they were proposed as a self-help course or courses that enhanced business and communication skills. So entrepreneurs, celebrities, actors, directors, all of these influential people demonstrated to potential members of ESP or Nexium that, you know, the, the, just the profound impact these courses could have on your life. And a lot of aspiring actors and directors and writers, they were told, you know, if you join these courses and programs, not only will you be taught through the courses how to propel your career and how to change your life and, and, and put your life in the right direction and put yourself on the right path, but you'll also be surrounded by famous celebrities and influential people within Hollywood and entrepreneurs and other sorts of, you know, all these, all these successful people. These individuals will propel your career because you have that Nexium connection or that executive success program connection. So it's kind of twofold. You have all these people that say, you know, Nexium worked for me or ESP worked for me. And then you have all these people that are there that can help you. And they say, hey, you know, we're both in ESP. Let's help each other out. I'll give you a gig in my next movie or whatever, right? 
By the early 2000s, Nexium began growing and the leaders began developing more programs. With these programs, group members were pressured to continue paying for additional courses, taking on debt, and in one couple's case, spending upwards of $300,000. Nexium and ESP really tried to remove any critical thought from any member's minds. So the idea was that you wouldn't question the things that you were asked to do as these tasks were meant to break you out of your comfort zone. Don't, don't question my methods. My methods are pure. My methods work. Don't question my methods. Do what I'm telling you. And are you feeling uncomfortable? Good. You should feel uncomfortable. This is meant to bring you out of your comfort zone. If you're feeling comfortable, you're not living. That sort of idea. So this critical thought about why you were being asked to do these things or where your money was going or what Keith was doing with your money or just in life in general, they, they, you know, it was meant to throw caution to the wind. Don't worry about what Keith is doing. He's doing what's right for you, right? And, you know, it's that same idea where if you're not uncomfortable, you're not living, you're not doing it correctly. It was essentially like Yes Man. I don't know if you've seen Yes Man. It's the idea of only saying yes to any opportunities, which, as you can imagine, lead to pretty awkward circumstances, right? And in the movie Yes Man, Jim Carrey is the star, and he's kind of like this this down guy, you know, who, who always says no when you ask him to hang out or always says no when he's asked to do something. And he attends this seminar and he's basically convinced that he needs to start saying yes. He needs to be a yes man. And in the movie, it's really amusing. He, he gets into all sorts of crazy things because he's saying yes to everything that comes across. But the idea really is, it's not that you need to say yes to everything, but the idea in Yes Man is be more of a yes person, right? Say yes to things that come up. Say yes to new experiences instead of being uh, negative or, you know, instead of shying away from things that make you uncomfortable. So, you know, Nexium really took it to another level, though. Like, as we'll see further on in the series, again, I'm going to keep saying that, you know, sometimes there were things that were too far out of your comfort zone, things that many times there were things that you should have said no to. But you have this removal of critical thought, this removal of critical thinking, and you kind of just go with the flow and you consistently engage with things whether or not you feel comfortable doing them. Now, when you talk about any religious organization or any cult, you need to think about funding. Where is your money coming from? Where are your resources coming from? In the case of Nexium, it came from the Bronfmans. Now, Edgar Bronfman Sr., he had attended several of the Executive Success Program seminars, and he introduced his daughters, Claire and Sarah, to the group. In 2003, Keith Raniere appeared on the cover of Forbes magazine, and in an interview that Bronfman Sr. gave, he was quoted as saying, I think it's a cult. So at this point, Edgar sees that his daughters are beginning to lend or give Keith large sums of money, and he starts doubting Keith. Once Bronfman Sr. started speaking out against the cult, his actions ended up turning Claire against him. Her lawyers claimed she and her father reconciled near the end of his life, but prior to that, she had installed spyware on his computer. So a lot of the money that the cult received came from the Seagram's Liquor Corporation, mainly from the daughters of Edgar Bronfman, Claire and Sarah. 
Seagram's Liquor Corporation. It was a multi-billion dollar corporation. And these two women, they basically could just put their hands in the, in the money pot and pull out whatever they wanted and throw it at Keith, right? And I think that kind of really pissed Edgar off is, you know, they're just, they're just enveloped in this weird society and they're taking all the money and just throwing it away at Keith, right? Now, that's not to say that um, a lot of members within the cult, you know, they didn't pay for things. That one couple, they paid almost $300,000 for all the courses that they took, right? So there's a lot of people within the organization, a lot of members that would pay for more courses and more courses and more courses, and they would bring other people in who would pay for more courses. And then that was the way for you to excel on the Stripe path. The more money you spent, the more courses you bought, the more people you brought into the cult, the more you, like the further you would excel along the Stripe path, you would get all your stripes and everything, which we'll, again, we'll dive into that in a little bit here. But the majority of the money came from the Bronfman sisters, and they used a lot of that to combat any legal battles that Keith was facing due to accusations of sexual assault or to different people defecting from the cult or, you know, all these other sorts of legal ventures that Keith would get himself into and he would need money to pay for lawyers to go through the court system. In 2001, Barbara Boucher joined the group. Eventually, she rose to the ranks of an executive board member. She and Keith dated for a period of time, and Barbara owned a financial management group, so she began managing funds for Claire and Sarah Bronfman. After Barbara left the cult, she began speaking out against the group and its controversial practices, and Keith and his team of lawyers brought legal cases against her over at least an eight-year period. So, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. There was all these sorts of legal battles that Keith was constantly engaging in and Nexium was constantly engaging in, and the Bronfman sisters really funded all of his legal ventures. In 2009, the Bronfman sisters brought the Dalai Lama to the palace in Albany. The sisters invited the Dalai Lama and paid for his appearance through the World Ethical Foundation. Now, this is just a rumor. I don't have actual evidence of this, but it's rumored that the WEF paid His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, upwards of a million dollars for his appearance, as well as for photo ops with Keith Raniere. And Keith meeting the Dalai Lama and having these photos together, it was another way to show people that he was enlightened. It was another way to show people that Nexium really worked, right? If the Dalai Lama was going to meet with Keith, that means that there's some validity to the, the aura of this holier-than-thou kind of aspect that Keith always brought on everyone. It's estimated that the sisters, the Bronfman sisters, invested around 100 to upwards of $200 million in the Nexium cult. I don't know about you, but there's a lot I could do with a million, much less 200 million. So in addition to celebrities and Hollywood elites, the group enlisted royal family members and high-ranking politicians from various countries around the world. Sarah Bronfman ended up leaving the cult, marrying and moving away. Claire, however, remained a loyal supporter until the bitter end. Another thing that I really wanted to touch on was these different subgroups you know, before we dive into the real uh, nitty-gritty sex cult aspect of Nexium, it's important to talk about the subgroups because I think those really built the foundation for having this secret society, this secretive 
little sorority within the group. One thing, we'll discuss DOS in a little bit. If you know anything about Nexium, you know that that's the secret sorority, the secret sex cult within Nexium. But one of the programs that really brought about DOS and really was uh, influential and crucial to recruiting female members into DOS was Jeunesse, the Jeunesse program. A lot of women, in particular women from Mexico, and you know, from all over the world, but in particular from Mexico, they attended this seminar at Catherine Oxenberg's home. So that was one of the main Jeunesse programs that saw a lot of women from Mexico and different countries come in and, and attend the seminar at Catherine Oxenberg's home. This program, the Jeunesse program in particular, was very misogynistic and it used a lot of feminist terms in such a way that Nancy Salzman could use these terms and twist these different uh, feminist terms and feminist theories to make women feel secure and supported. But in reality, the program was meant to tear these women down and make them align themselves with Keith's views of a woman's place in society and within the cult. If you watch any videos about the Jeunesse program, if you watch Alison Mack or Nancy Salzman discuss Jeunesse, it's, it's such a weird idea to see these women look at, you know, this is a, this Jeunesse program was created by a man, but it's about female empowerment and it's about feminism. That's a weird aspect to me. Like, it's important that men engage in feminism and, and especially intersectional feminism, but it's just a weird aspect that you would have feminist courses and, and a, and a feminist-driven seminar, but it was written by a man delivered by a woman, you know? So it's like, even from the very beginning in the Jeunesse programs, you can see that everything that they talk about in Jeunesse, it's coming from Keith. It's not Nancy Salzman's ideas. It's not Allison Mack's ideas. It's not a woman's ideas. It's a man's idea of feminism. It's kind of a twisted, convoluted mess when you really start digging into it. And the, the, the weird kind of twisted aspect to this is that Keith used these various programs, especially Jeunesse, to discuss the aspect of rape. And, you know, again, we're going back to this, you're only a victim if, you're, if you act like a victim. Keith's teaching stated that rape wasn't rape if the victim decided not to look at it that way. So basically, if you self-victimize, then you're abusing yourself. You have to kind of decide that the assault you experienced wasn't assault. It's just such a weird thing to wrap your mind around. You need to, you know, not let yourself become the victim. And there were even chants that they had uh, with Jeunesse and within Nexium as a whole where they would say, you know, like different chants that included the phrases, I will not allow myself to be a victim. It's weird. Like if somebody came up to me and stabbed me in the neck or stabbed me in the chest and I just said, oh, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to be a victim. This doesn't actually hurt me. You know, this isn't going to kill me because I'm thinking, oh, you know, I enjoy being stabbed in the neck. I don't think you're self-victimizing if you're recognizing that you were assaulted or you're recognizing that you were abused. These programs used neuro-linguistic programming and other sorts of hypnotic techniques. And, you know, when you have all these people around you telling you the same thing and telling you that it's women's empowerment, it's female empowerment, 
you know, they, they really drill into you that these are the things that you should think, these are the things you should feel. It's just a weird thing to wrap your head around. The whole course was misogyny handed down from a cruel man and presented by women who were manipulated by said cruel man. Now, another interesting program was the SLP programs, also known as the Society of Protectors. They had a council called the High Council of the Society of Protectors. This was essentially the opposite of, of the Jeunesse program. It was a system of programs designed for men. Eventually, they developed the SOP Complete program where they invited women to attend the courses on a short-term basis. One member stated that the SOP program courses were developed to show women how young men were treated, which is also, again, just a really convoluted mess. SOP saw incredibly severe physical aspects like planking, push-ups, you know, other physical feats that you had to accomplish. The women in the SOP programs endured humiliation, physical and emotional punishment, and they were only allowed to speak, eat, or use the washroom after repeating a mantra such as, quote, I am nothing and I have no emotions, end quote. And, uh, you know, specifically, they had to request to speak or use the washroom. So they would have to ask to eat or to use the bathroom or to, to speak. And they would have to repeat a mantra such as the one I just read or others like it. The SOP programs required readiness drills. So team leaders would message attendees or, you know, people who are enrolled in these programs. They would text them, ready, question mark. And this statement required every member to reply with an additional statement, ready, within, but within 60 seconds. So you got a text that said, ready, question mark, and within a minute, you would have to say, ready. If one or more team members missed the mark, they would be required to pay penance. And some penances included cold showers, some were physical punishments, you know, that sort of thing. So I remember one, one person was saying their, their penance was to stand outside in the freezing cold without a jacket for a certain period of time. These readiness drills were a sign that Keith was creating a, a militant-like support network. You know, these readiness drills were a call to action. Over 600 members were required to be ready for action and be on call. So this to me, this to me is a sign that Keith was going the route of Waco where we saw the standoff between the Branch Davidians and the FBI. Maybe we'll do an episode on that in the future. But throughout these episodes, we'll see that Keith has a lot in common with David Koresh from the, the Branch Davidians and Jim Jones from Jonestown, David Berg from Children of God and other cult leaders. We see a lot of similarities. These readiness drills were really like a call to action, people getting ready for war. Before we end this first part in our two-part series, we should discuss some of the cult-like rituals and teachings that they had within the program. So everyone in the program was required to wear white sashes. They were required to bow and say thank you prefect and thank you vanguard when they attended sessions or when they saw the prefect or the vanguard. So Nancy or Keith. One module and various programs even discussed and some were even titled Why Nexium is Not a Cult. So when you have to say that you're not a cult, you're probably a fucking cult. One of the cult's principles was that they said naturally, women should be or naturally they preferred to be monogamous 
while men should be or preferred to be polyamorous. So women should be loyal to their partners and men get to fool around. Like many other cults, in some cases they used starvation, sleep deprivation, extreme physical exertion, as well as mentally and emotionally abusive tactics. We'll cover some things that certain people experienced in the next episode, and some of it is really intense, so forewarning. But, you know, we'll, we'll see again and again within these cults that these leaders would say, don't be surprised if we get attacked by the outside world for our radical thinking. Right, The government and the media, they'll be against us and they'll put forth smear campaigns against leaders. So when your family members or the government or law officials, you know, the media, when they tell you that there's something wrong with the cult, when they tell you there's something wrong with the leaders, don't be surprised. The whole world is out to get us because they want what we have or, you know, they're jealous of what we have. They they don't understand the way that we're going about our lives. They don't understand the process that we do. And we're doing things that make you uncomfortable. So yeah, people are going to be uncomfortable, right? This is always really convenient for every leader, but this was convenient for Keith because he was always in the media or, you know, or he was facing a lawsuit about assaulting someone or sleeping with someone underage or, you know, all sorts of things. Keith was always had, had that's why he needed the Bronfman sisters to pay for all of his legal fees. And if someone wrote an article about him or wrote an article exposing his past or exposing Nexium, then he would challenge them in a court of law. And that's really why he needed the Bronfman sisters, or at least Claire in 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 later years, is to you know bankroll him going through the court system. And he would challenge people if they wrote about Nexium or if they exposed different things in his past, he would challenge them in a court of law. So one last thing I'd like to cover before we end this episode is the Stripe Path. The Stripe Path was Nexium's merit-based system, similar to the ranking in martial arts courses. When you're in martial arts or karate, you get the green belt or black belt or whatever belt, right? So these rankings are represented by sashes instead of belts, and these members wore the sashes around their neck. When they earned four white stripes on their sashes, that would move them up to the next color level. And the way you move up in this pyramid scheme of colors and stripes is to recruit new members and pay for additional classes. So let's just go through a couple of these color systems. White was for students, which were members who had just joined, and everyone began with a white sash. Yellow was for members who worked for the organization for free, but continued to pay dues. Orange was for proctors, and proctors wore this color, earning a small commission on recruitment, but they were still putting money into the cult to advance to this level and to advance further. Green was for senior proctors, and generally these sashes cost upwards of a million dollars. Blue sashes are for counselors, and they can cost upwards of $5 million. Purple was for senior counselors, and purple was a really difficult level to obtain, with only three members ever achieving purple sash status. Gold sashes, this was a limited color to the prefect, aka Nancy Salzman. So Nancy was the only one who ever wore gold. And in case you're wondering, Keith would actually wear a white sash because he would claim that he was always a student regardless of his status and his, you know, proposed enlightenment. 
He was always a student and always learning, so he would wear the white sash. In our next episode, we'll discuss some of the courses that people took within the program, within Nexium. Dr. Brandon Porter and his inhumane and unethical scientific experiments. We'll discuss some of the victims of the DOS program, and we'll discuss DOS itself. So DOS was the secret sex cult. So in the next episode, we'll, we'll really dive into the DOS sex cult and the various victims that were in the cult itself. And finally, we'll discuss the sentencing and the trial and the finality of the Nexium cult. And we'll discuss where Nexium is at now because surprisingly, there are still some members that support Nexium and support Keith Raniere. Again, thank you so much for allowing us to take that break that we had. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope to see you again for our next episode. And we're also really excited about the episodes that we have coming up in October. We're going to be bringing you some spooky tales for October. So make sure you tune in there. Again, you can always check us out on Discord. And we'll leave a link below this episode. And you can always find it on any of our socials. And, you know, thank you so much for listening. Looking for a podcast all about nerdum? Want a podcast with an emphasis on representation? The Nerd Alternative is the podcast for you. Join me, Ram. Me, Hassan. And me, Levi. Three black British nerds tackling the pop culture we love and sharing why we love them. The Nerd Alternative, a sweet melting pot of all things nerdy. This episode is produced by Death Hotel Creative, hosted by myself, Dr. Mystery. To view more and to grab your exclusive Cabinet of Mystery merch, visit us at notwhatwesay.com. You can check us out on Instagram at Cabinet of Mystery or our Twitter at Open the Cabinet. Please leave us a review if you enjoyed the show and let us know what topics you'd like to hear in the future. You can hit us up either on the socials or at cabinetofmystery at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voice message and appear in upcoming episodes, you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash cabinetofmystery. Again, thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe for more episodes.